If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans. In just a moment, we'll be reading verses 18 through 23 of that first chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you need to borrow one. You may do so. In the, the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find a couple of books. The black one would be an ESV Bible. And you can find Romans 1 on page 939 of that Bible. In 1095 or so, a man named Anselm produced a very famous work because he was a scholastic scholar and also the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote this in Latin. Its Latin title was Cur Deus Homo, which also means why the God man or why God became man. The purpose of him writing this book was to explain not the good, not the importance, but the necessity of the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and becoming a man. It is an incredibly important work. It laid the groundwork for a great deal of theology, both in Protestant circles and even in Roman Catholic circles. In it, he asked his interlocutor, a man named Bodzo, if, if he were to be told by God to not look away from a certain place, that he is not to look to his left even for a second, if he would do it. Bodzo faithfully answers that no, he shouldn't. Anselm then asks again, what if looking to your left would save your life? Bodzo faithfully answers, no, I, I still can't imagine that I should. He says, well, what, what if you looking just to your left for a second would save everything that isn't God in the world? Every known creation, every known being would be saved if you just glanced to your left. And Bodzo says, well, God made them. I'm sure that he could make them again. It would not justify my looking away from where God has told me to look. And Anselm finally says, well, what if, it's, what if God has made multiple worlds? What if multiple universes exist and you could save all of them by doing that? Would that be an acceptable thing to do? Bodzo again says, no, no, that would never be an acceptable thing to do. Anselm then asks him, if no reason was good enough to do it, if he did it, what would then he have to pay in order to make amends for it? The answer is, if even saving the whole world was not enough justification to do it, then even giving the whole world back would not be enough to earn forgiveness for it. Some 910 years later in Clinton, Tennessee, I was working at a Papa John's, and a man asked me a question much like Anselm's. And he, as he was walking out the store, working for me at the time, said, listen, I have this thing that I was told as a kid that I should never do. And it's a small thing. It hurts nobody. It impacts no one else. It's just for me. But I was told that if I did that thing, I would go to hell. And he says, it's small and it's insignificant. Would God truly send me to hell for that? Behind his question lie much deeper questions about the justice of God. He, firmly in the Bible Belt, this city of Clinton, Tennessee, is just north of Knoxville, it's east of Oak Ridge. He knew very well. He was raised in the church, just like everyone in Clinton, Tennessee that I met was raised in the church. And everyone had a papa who served as a deacon in a Baptist church. He knew very well 
He had sat under fire and brimstone preaching of the, the, the terrible torment and conscious knowledge of the pain and suffering that would go on for eternity in hell. And he said, this insignificant thing would lead me there. What does that tell you about the justice of God? How is, how is that fair? How do we balance those things out knowing the great weight of hell and the slightness of this sin? How could God be justified at all in doing that? How might you answer? Would God be right in sending you to hell for a slight sin? If you would say yes to that, how does that align with the justice of God as laid out in Scripture? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Are the two things equal in measure and in depth? What would be your biblical justification for your answer? I have no doubt that we will not be able to answer those things fully and completely today. And even if I were able to assign the right words to my mouth, and even if my mouth was going to form those words correctly, I could not do so in such a way that would give you the full implication and the full weight of that answer. But I think we can begin to answer it today. And we begin to answer that in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. If you would read with me from God's word. There Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of our God. Generally speaking, uh, we're going to do two different sections of this today, and the two are overlapping and they clearly overlap. We're going to talk and work our way through the text first before we do application. Uh, application is meaning and meaning is application, so it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of a fake way to go through a text, but nevertheless, I think that it's important that we get all of what Paul is trying to say first before we kind of dive into what we might be pulling out of it for our own lives. And so first, let's tackle what Paul's statement is. We're going to divide this up into three different parts. Beginning in verse 18, we hear Paul as he confesses the nature of wrongdoing. In verse 18, Paul confesses the nature of wrongdoing. That verse 18 begins with the word for. And again, whenever you hear the word for, we realize that it's probably grounding or explaining something that's come before it. Now, it's very difficult to know exactly how this is supposed to relate to 16 and 17, Passages that spoke of the glory of the gospel and the saving righteousness of our God. But again, we realize that that previous section is incredibly concise as a summary of the gospel. And it's very condensed as a summary of the argument of Romans. And therefore, it needs a lot of explanation. The question that we would naturally come to as we read through this is, well, what kind of salvation is it a kind of salvation that heals my brokenness because I live in a broken world regardless of whether I'm guilty of sin or not? 
Is it the kind of salvation that would give me forgiveness for my sins? Is it a salvation from the oppressive forces that surround me? Why does it require the power of God? Why does it take his creational power, the very power that spoke the universe into existence, why is that same kind of power needed for something like this? Why not just rely upon us to do what is right? And what's more, that leads directly into a question of why faith? Why not just tell us to do so many Hail Marys to make up for it? Or give us five pillars or an eightfold path? The answer that Paul comes to is for the wrath of God is being revealed. The same way that the righteousness of God at end times is being revealed in the current time, in the death and the life of Jesus Christ, so his wrath is likewise being revealed. It is not the full, angry, consummated wrath of God, but it is wrath nonetheless. And we get a foretaste of what is to come, even in the current time. And it is being released against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. If God always does what is right and his righteousness is attached to whatever it is that he does, if God does it, then it is right and good and true. Then the idea of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness are two ways of saying the same thing. We don't act like God. We are ungodly. God does something and it is right and we ought to do the same, but we do not do it. Therefore, we are ungodly and that makes what we do not right. And therefore, we are unrighteous. Therefore, God's wrath is pointed at that evil, that ungodliness and that unrighteousness. But what is this unrighteous thing that we do? It says that we suppress the truth. This is not just a simple denial, but an absolutely willing ignorance, a forgetfulness, and a rejection of the truth. We do what is wrong. We do not act like God. We do not love that which is true, and therefore, we do not love God himself, and we suppress the truth. But it's not just any old truth that we suppress. It isn't the truth that two plus two equals four. It's not the truth that Hannibal took Rome or tried to. It isn't the truth that Cinnamon Toast Crunch is the best cereal of them all, even with the shrimp tails. It is a very specific truth that we suppress, and that truth is nothing less than the nature of God. It's not God in general. It's not that we ignore that there should be a God, but it is the nature of that God that we suppress. Therefore, in verses 19 through 20, Paul then turns to God. And he begins to clear God of wrongdoing. Paul clears God of wrongdoing in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 in the ESV says, For what can be known about God. Don't let that can confuse you. What Paul means to imply here has nothing to do with your ability to get at it. The New American Standard is a little bit better of a translation here. Where they write, That which is known about God is evident. The purpose is not to imply that you have the ability to get the information, that, that it's sitting out there, like on Google, for you to be able to access any time you want to. That if you were Aristotle, or you were King Solomon, or you were a wise man who had time on his hands, you could somehow reason from what you see in creation all the way back to God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that you are bright enough or you're capable enough to get to this information. Rather, it is built into who 
we are. God has revealed it to us. Notice the end of verse 19 there. God has shown it to them. He has displayed it to them. He has made it manifest to all. It sounds a lot, frankly, like Psalm 19. Psalm 19 begins this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Notice how David speaks of these things. Notice the kind of words that he uses. He says, declare and proclaim and speech and knowledge and voice and words. He does not talk about our ability to discern the stars in the sky, our ability to understand how evolution works. He doesn't explain any of that. He doesn't say if you get some sort of advanced philosophical training, you might be able to map God onto the universe. Or rather, he makes it clear that the skies do something very ordinary and very plain. They look at us and they speak to us. God tells us through these things. Interestingly, he uses this kind of metaphor, this kind of way of speaking, that while clarifying there is a voice that speaks to us, there's actually no voice. He says there is no speech and there are no words. This is not a Lion King Mustafa kind of thing where the father talks to you in the form of a cloud with an audible voice. That's not what's happening here. There is no actual speech. There are no actual words. Yet nevertheless, there is a declaration that comes to you. It's odd that Paul uses kind of the same juxtaposition. The KJV puts this a little bit better for us when it says that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. We might put it a little bit more starkly. The unseen things of God are seen. He makes them known. Just as there was a time in Psalm 19 where you heard plainly what wasn't even spoken to you, now you see plainly what isn't even seen by you. What does Paul mean by this? I think best he means that we all have been given a clear knowledge of God as God. We know certain things about God naturally and inevitably. We know these things about God by what we don't see in nature. That is, his eternal power and divinity are shown to us even though we don't see them in nature. We've sang about this already this morning. We see the power in all of creation. Creation is incredibly powerful. Even to us today, it is an incredibly powerful force that we can barely withstand at times. But imagine what that would have been like to somebody in the ancient Near East. Imagine what a lightning strike would have been like to them. Immense power. And even more so, they know that if there was somebody who made that immense power, not only must he be more powerful, but he couldn't be like the things that he made. These things are true for us. We know these sort of implicitly. And we don't have to be great philosophers to know it. From the simplest child, we can understand these things. Ask a kid about the chicken and the egg. They know that at some point in time, there's got to be something besides chicken and egg that put either a chicken or an egg there. It's not chicken and eggs all the way back. At some point in time, something not chicken or not egg put an egg or a chicken there. They knew. They knew that whatever did that was more powerful than a chicken or an egg, and it wasn't chicken or egg. Now, that's a little bit simple, but that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul's talking about. 
from creation, implicit in all of us, is a knowledge that God is powerful and he is not like everything else that's made. And in the end, God reveals these things to us in what he made, which means both us and in creation. Tom Schreiner says this, God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world. We know this, and Paul says, we suppress it. Therefore, you are without excuse. No one will get up on the last day in the judgment of God and say, God, I just didn't know you. I didn't know that you existed. I had no idea, Lord. God's going to say, no, you, you knew. You just rejected it. People often ask about a man on an island who was dropped there when he was young, raised by wolves or coconuts or something, and he's never had a Bible. He knows nothing about organized religion. He, he can't figure out any of this stuff for himself. Is, is he going to be condemned because he has rejected Jesus? Paul's answer is clearly no. He's not going to be condemned because he rejected Jesus. He's going to be condemned because he suppresses the truth about God. Everyone does this. God is not wrong in his judgments. Paul clears God of wrongdoing. But lastly, in verses 21 through 23, Paul condemns humanity of wrongdoing. Paul condemns humanity of wrongdoing. He says very clearly, and notice in verse 21, the ESV gets rid of any ambiguity about whether you can get there or not on your own ability. It says very clearly, for although they knew God, they didn't honor or they didn't glorify him or give him thanks. It's not that they were supposed to give him glory for being a redeemer. They weren't supposed to give him glory for being a savior. They couldn't even give him glory for being kind. They would have known of earthquakes and hurricanes. They would have known of these natural disasters that came upon him. But they still could have given him glory as the one who is powerful above all things. They could have given him glory and honored him as one who is majestic above all things and great above all things. And they refused to do it. And what's more, they didn't give him thanks either. Gratitude is a natural response to the very idea that you have been made. The simple fact that God made you means you ought to scream out, thanks for making me. I wouldn't exist without you. And Paul says they didn't do either. They neither glorified him for the good that he is, nor did they give him thanks for what he has done. So, he says, they became foolish. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. The idea is that their thinking, their reasoning, their desires got all messed up and confused. We no longer, in this state, know what is good, right, true, or noble. We desire the wrong things. We then justify those wrong things and call those wrong things good. This is what scholars have long called the noetic effects of the fall. That the fall has not just made us prone to sin, it has messed us up in heart and in mind. Fool is a very biblical word. Whether it's foolish or that they became fools, it symbolizes one who is outside of God's wisdom and therefore outside of his saving grace. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical psalms and they both start out the same way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
is important that you recognize that the fool says that in his heart. The psalmist is very clear. He doesn't have to say it on his lips. This fool could very well stand up in any Baptist church, any Methodist church, any Presbyterian church in the world and say there is a God, but in his heart, he's acting like there isn't one. So they don't do what they should do. These are acts of omission. But then they do something very bad that they shouldn't do, which is an act of commission. They make gods out of things that aren't gods. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They took things that they knew weren't God and they treated them as though they were God. They made the creator out of creatures. And they, the creature, acted like the creator in making the creator out of creatures. If all that seems backwards, you're right, it is. It's almost as though these people have lost their ever-loving minds, which is exactly what Paul says has happened. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Paul drives this home using two very distinct words. Here, in verse 23, he he says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling. We might want to translate that, images in the likeness of. The same exact words are used in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What Paul is saying is these people are acting like God. They are are creating God. And they are acting like they are above God. How backwards and upside down can you get? And this, by the way, is the natural extension of ingratitude. You're only grateful for those things that, that you are given that are unnecessary, but when you need them, When you stand above them, you're not grateful for it. And by inverting the relationship between us and God, we try to place God in our debt, place him under our obligation, because he owes us, because we have made him. This, by the way, is the end of all idolatry. Whether that idolatry looks like carving little images out of stone and wood, or whether it looks like you running after success, or sex, or money, or whatever the case might be. It is the taming of God as a thing. It is the attempt to stand above God and tell him what he must be like and then worshiping that. This is the exaltation of yourself as a God. As Paul works through this, you need to understand that this is all, all a very Jewish way of arguing for the sinfulness of Gentiles as idolaters. The best part about it, though, is that Paul is very clever and he's very sneaky because it's not just the Gentiles who fall into this trap. Paul is using words that, are rem- that remind people not only of a, something like the Book of Wisdom in chapter 13. The Book of Wisdom is an apocryphal book. You'll find it in Roman Catholic Bibles where they argue almost the exact same way that Paul is doing here. But in Psalm 106, 20, and in Jeremiah 2, 11, the psalmist and Jeremiah use words that Paul picks up on. In Psalm 106, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. And in Jeremiah 2, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
And while laying waste to the Gentiles, Paul is also laying the groundwork for the Jews. And he is saying, you don't escape. No one escapes this. You are all condemned. All mankind is guilty. We have all suppressed our knowledge of God and unrighteousness and replaced it with what we want God to be. We are ultimately condemned in our wrongdoing. Let us then turn to the second part and apply these things to us and think through these things. So what does it say about our sin? First, quite clearly, the depth of our sin is universal. This is not specifically a Gentile problem. It's not specifically a Jewish problem. There is no race of men, no class of men or women that falls more under this curse than anybody else. Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women alike, barbarian and Greek alike, white and black alike, all fall under this condemnation. We all suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We are just as tempted by idolatry and making God in our own image as was anyone who made a wooden idol way back in the day. And secondly, the depth of our sin is not its symptoms. The depth of our sin is not its symptoms. Many will use this passage in Romans 1, specifically the verses that are about to come, to say, well, this, this shows the real depth depth of the sin that's going on here and especially the sin of homosexuality is picked up in Romans 1 and held out as sort of the example of the ultimate depravity that human beings find themselves in I'm going to tell you that's the wrong way to read the text because that is not the ultimate depravity homosexuality like the other sins listed which include envy, murder, strife, deceit maliciousness being a gossip, slanderer, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All of these are symptoms. They are symptoms of idolatry. They are not the root cause and they are not the root evil. Our failures are not one-off mistakes that we can simply isolate and blow off as small or insignificant this is actually the problem with Anselm's question and the problem with the question the man asked me before he left the store. You can't isolate your sin like that. You can't isolate homosexuality like that. You can't isolate I, or, or any of the ones that we've mentioned, whether it's slander or hatred of God or being insolent or haters of your parents. You can't isolate it and say, well, is this sin really bad? Is it bad enough to send me to hell? No, what's bad enough to send you to hell is that you are the kind of person who would do that because you are an idolater. Because God is not your God. Your God is whatever you want him to be. You think that you can make the rules up for yourself. If you're having trouble with your left arm, it's going numb and it's in pain. It could just be a sign that you're getting old. Maybe you're sleeping on it wrong. It might just be something that, that is going to persist with you for the rest of your life. It could, however, be a symptom of the fact that your heart is about to fail. The symptom is not the real problem. The real problem is the real problem. Paul is giving you his right judgment as an apostle and a doctor of the human condition. Your small sins are not individual incidents. 
It is rather a symptom of an underlying problem that lurks all the way down in you. You don't just do small sins. You are twisted in your sins, so you don't truly understand your problem. You have rejected God. You've refused to give God what he is due. You denied the very essence of who God is. You've twisted him into just another thing to serve yourself and your own desires to be used for your own good ends. You haven't simply done something bad, but you have denied the very godliness of God. And you have tried to tame him, to remove him from his place of lordship and rulership over all of creation. What do we do when we force kings to do our bidding? We dethrone them. We remove them so that we can sit in their stead. For kingdoms, that's treason. Before God, it is nothing less than sin. When we do this to human beings, we take human nature and we reduce it to simply being animals and we treat human beings as less than other human beings. The net result of that is nothing but bloodshed, brutality, violence, oppression, and misery. And it is wicked. How wicked must it be to do this to a perfect and a holy God? Listen, you need to know that your morality and all of the ways that you might go through a checklist of sins that you do and the good that you do and the bad that you do, I will go out on a limb and say it does not surpass the Pharisees. You are not more moral than the Pharisees. That ought to pose a real problem for you. Because Jesus himself says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was their problem? It was not simply immorality. Their symptoms were likely less than yours. But the disease is just as malicious and aggressive in them as it is in you. They were just as, if not more, twisted than the rest of us. They refused to recognize the very God of creation when he stood before them, and they, above all people, should have recognized him. The symptoms might be different. The disease is the same. And that disease ultimately kills them. This, by the way, is why we also have such a hard time seeing so many of our testimonies giving credit to the power of God. We, after all, were more moral or better than those who have these great testimonies of all of their wickedness that travels behind them. Because we equate the symptoms with the disease, but the symptoms aren't the disease. You were just as diseased. The symptoms might delay. We all suffer from that same disease of idolatry, and suppression of the truth of God. We try to make God into something we can control, something manipulated for our own good pleasure. We suppress the knowledge of a powerful, untamable God, and we make God in our own fashion whatever we want him to be. This is why those who look really moral, who have their life put together, who walk with honesty and hard work through the world, need a tremendously powerful salvation just like the worst hardened criminal. Symptoms are different. The disease is the same. Lastly, the depth of our sin glorifies Jesus' solution. 
The depth of our sin glorifies Jesus' solution. Why is it important to recognize these things? To go back to that doctor's analogy, if a doctor gets the problem wrong, it will lead to the wrong solution and ultimately to a death. If you go into the doctor for stomach pains and he says, well, listen, it's probably just acid reflux, take a couple of antacids, and he sends you home, but it's actually your spleen about to burst, you are in trouble. The wrong analysis of the problem leads to the wrong solution, and that leads to nothing but death. Listen, if you think that your problem before God is just a matter of increasing your morality, you just need to be a little bit better of a person. You just need to plug some holes in your leaking boat then Jesus just becomes an example for you. Somebody who lived a holy life, he's a holy man, he's an example that we ought to follow and do good things as he did them. If your problem is primarily that you suffer in this world and are broken by the general nature of sin and fallenness, if you just need wholeness and comfort, then Jesus is just an aid and a counselor, a therapeutic help, the spiritual equivalent of psychiatric meds. If your problem is just sin, and if those sins are small and insignificant, you just need a little bit of forgiveness for them, then you will just ask for a little bit of forgiveness from him. But if your problem lies deeper, if you realize that you are so twisted by sin, that you don't even know truly what is good, if you are truly so overwhelmed by it, that you don't know the Lord God when you see him. You don't know who he is. You don't know what he is like. If you were so taken by it, that what is good you call bad and what is bad you call good. If you were so blind, deaf, dumb, and ignorant of the fact that you have suppressed the true knowledge of God, then Jesus has to be more than those things. He's an example, yeah. He has to be an example for us. We need that. But he's got to be more than that. He is a counselor, yes. And he wants to heal and give cures and help and soothe and comfort. But he's got to be more than that. He is the place where we find forgiveness, but he is more than that. He must be a source of something new altogether. He must unwind the very knot that we've tied ourselves into to bring order to the chaos of our lives, to bring clarity to our minds, to give us wisdom instead of foolishness and light instead of darkness. Friends, Jesus has done great things. He does not provide us with a weak and limp salvation that could have come from somewhere else. He didn't just do what you could have done on your own, but did it so you wouldn't have to. He does what only God could have done, and he does it for people that he considers brothers and sisters. He renews us, he remakes us, he remolds us, he gives us new birth. He takes our twisted souls, bent and broken, and makes them right again. Who else can do this? Where else would such a salvation be found? There is no other name under heaven by which this can be done for you. There is nowhere else to turn where God will provide this for you. Know, friends, the depth of your sin, for it is exceedingly great.
and know just as fully and assuredly the beauty of the salvation that Jesus Christ has afforded you. Glorify him with your life and give him thanks in all things for he has done good things for you. Trust in him and repent of your sin. Let us pray. Father, our sin is greater than we know. It is so dark and deep. We are so lost in it that we cannot see its true nature. It has blinded us, twisted us, ruined us before you. But thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. He alone can rescue us from the wickedness of our condition. He can give us help, aid, comfort, forgiveness, make us new altogether. Amazingly, his grace is indeed greater than our sin. May all praise be to our great God, triune in perfection forever. We pray these things and speak these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.